As a child, I remember riding with my parents as we would go to my friends' houses and entering into neighborhoods where there would be a sign at the entrance that said, Neighborhood Watch. I knew exactly what that meant. It meant that the people in that neighborhood, the people in those houses, were going to be on the lookout, always making sure nothing bad was happening, looking for any illegal activity. And while neighborhood watches are vital for crime prevention, they also represent a mentality, a mentality that looks out for people that might be out to get us, a mentality where we're always skeptical about the people around us, worried about what's going to happen. Far too many Christians live their lives in the same way, worried about what someone's going to do them, worried that people are coming after us, worried about the people in their lives or the people that are their acquaintances and how they're going to impact them. Over the next few weeks, we want to turn the idea of Neighborhood Watch on its head. Instead of talking about shelter and protection, I want to talk about opportunity. Instead of talking about worrying about the people that are around us, I want to talk about engaging the people who are around us. And most importantly, I want to remind us of what it means to be a neighbor according to Scripture. And my guess is that when we understand the true biblical definition of being a neighbor, it will stretch every single one of us. Right now, I'm standing at the entrance to what may be the largest housing developed in the history of Goodlettsville. In the history of this town that our church calls home, this may be the most homes built in one location ever. And as I stand here, I think about the people that will be moving in. And if the trends hold, the people that move into this neighborhood will be from diverse backgrounds, diverse ethnicities, diverse socioeconomic backgrounds, diverse religious backgrounds, and from all over the country. What I do know for sure is that the people that move into this neighborhood, 100% of them will be people made in the image of God. And I also know that most of them will need to hear the gospel and come to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. The question I have for us, First Baptist Gillisville, is will we be ready? Will we be ready as we literally see the fields ripen unto harvest around us? Will we be obedient to the call that Christ has put upon our lives to share our faith with those that are moving in? Will we be ready, First Gillisville, to take the gospel to our neighbors who are literally moving in right next door? So a few months ago when that development began, I, uh, I went over just to kind of look at where it was going to be. There wasn't a house built yet. There were some, some kind of plots out there. And I was struck as I went around to where they had the home or they were going to sell the land. You go talk to them about it. That as I stood there in that place in my car, I was kind of there and I got out of the car and stood for a second. I was just kind of looking around. I thought about the fact that uh, somewhere around 400 units, houses and townhome units, are going to be built in that area. And when I stood there at literally next to where they're going to be selling all of this property, I looked out, and it was still, uh, the, the leaves hadn't come off the trees, and so there were lots of trees that were filled in. And the only thing I saw on the horizon was our spire. And I couldn't help but get a vision from the Lord at that moment to think about the fact that there are going to be 400 units, people moving into our community, and one of the landmarks they're going to see is the spire. Now, we do not live in a day and age when they're going to see the spire and think, whoo, I better go check that place out. Well, some people will. Some people do, right? The Dole Bears did. But for the most part, it's a time when we are going to have to go to them. 
And the question I want to ask is, are we ready? What I want to do over the next four weeks is we're going to talk about neighborhood watch. And I do want to turn that idea on its head that it's not, hey, hey, we're watching out to see if things bad are going to happen. I want us to begin to watch and to look and to notice those around us with the eyes that the Bible calls us to do. And I want to start today by asking that question on what are, what are we worth? What, what is our worth? What is the worth of human beings come from? If I were to ask you right now, hey, what are you worth? What's your value? What immediately comes to mind if I say to you, what are you worth? Well, for some of you, you would think of your income or your assets or your net worth or how much you've got in your house. What if I ask you, what is your family worth? What if I ask you, what are your neighbors worth? What about your enemies? What about strangers? What determines our value as human beings? If you talk and look at the world around us, they give us all kinds of ideas about what should determine our worth. They would, someone would say, just your wealth, how wealthy you are, how rich you are, based on how much money you have, that determines your worth. Some would say your celebrity status, your uh, ability to be known and to have people know who you are. Some would point to physical beauty or political power or athletic accomplishment or social media influence. How do you determine your worth? In the summer of 2005, the London Zoo opened a new exhibit. And they put a sign up over their new exhibit that looked just like every other exhibit. It was in the primate area and it said simply, warning, humans in their natural environment. They did an online contest and eight humans won the opportunity to be in a sealed enclosure. They had rocks out there. Some of them were sunning on a rock. They had a table out there. Some of them played board games. They would wave to the people that came. But they lived for the summer in an enclosed environment at the London Zoo. When you went to the exhibit, it said this is the species, Homo sapiens, and it gave the diet of the species, the habitat, the worldwide distribution, and the threats to the population, just like any other animal in the zoo. When asked about why they did this at the London Zoo, the silliness of what it seemed pointed to a deeper, more tragic reality. Polly Willis, one of the directors of the exhibit, said that it was the downplay the uniqueness of human beings as a species. She said, seeing people in a different environment among other animals teaches members of the public that a human is just another primate. One of the participants, one of the eight that got to sun on the rocks and play board games and wave to the spectators that came to say hello, Tom Mahoney said, a lot of people think that humans are above other animals. When they see humans just as animals here, it reminds us that we're not that special. So which is it? Is there something unique? Is there something special about humanity? Or is, are we just another animal? Society likes to walk that tightrope between declaring that we are nothing more than a higher form of an evolutionary animal life and yet calling us all to treat each other in some special way. And that's because intrinsically we feel that there is something different 
about us as humans. That there's something more. We look to philosophers to give us the reason why human beings are different than the rest of the animal kingdom. And while some of the answers get close, nothing gives us the answer like God's Word. And so today, I want to go back to the beginning and see a couple of words and phrases in the book of Genesis that shows us the unique status of humans as creation. So take your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 2 and then go back to Genesis chapter 1. For some of you A-type personalities, that's going to bother you, but we'll be all right. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 2. What I want to do is I want to ask that question, what makes us unique? I want us to set a theological foundation because the rest of the month and towards the end of this sermon, we're going to talk about why that matters for the people that are moving next door into this neighborhood. But more than that, the people that live in your neighborhood, the people that you work with, the people that you interact with, people that you interact with physically, the people that you interact with online, the people that we see on television, how we feel, how we think about them. Like we're going to set a foundation here today that helps us to interpret the world in which we live. Genesis Chapter 2, verse 7. Now chapter 1, we're going to go back there in a minute, gives us kind of the overview of creation. It's kind of the big picture of creation. Chapter 2 then focuses in more specifically on us as human beings, how we were created. And in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, it says, Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. Now, there are a couple of things in here that you might not notice right away that show the uniqueness of humanity. And the first one comes in that word formed. It says the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils and man became a living being. What happens with that word formed is we have a transition in the language that has been used to describe God's creation. The word formed there literally means like a potter forms clay, like a a woodworker forms wood into something else, something more. One of our nephews is one of those guys that can, he literally took down, chopped down two trees in his front yard that had some issues with them and were overhanging. And he chopped them down and cut down the wood and formed a beautiful dinner table for their entire family through woodworking out of that. It's amazing to me watch people take tools and raw elements and turn them into something amazing. And what it says here about God and the way that he created you and me is that he formed us. The word here, this is a different word that has been used so far in Genesis to describe his creation, means that he did detailed work on us. It is the description of the way that a chef would do a delicacy, something that was exquisite and precise. It is the words used to describe that precision that is used in someone creating something spectacular. And someone taking common materials and turning them into something extraordinary. 
I'm sure this afternoon when the big game is on and the commercials start to play, one of the shows that will be promoted on Fox where the game is being played or shown is a new show that is coming out this week where they are competing. You know how they have reality shows competing in different areas. There's a new one coming out this week called the Lego Masters where they're going to give people boxes of Legos and they're going to create things out of it. And they showed some of the work of people that are going to be on the show. And I was just amazed. Anybody here ever worked with Legos? Anybody here ever stepped on a Lego? All people said, ouch, right? So I saw something that said they ought to have changed the scale at the hospital. How is your pain right now on a scale from good to I just stepped on a Lego? Like, where is it in this? All right. So, for instance, one of these guys built this out of Legos. That's a full-size car. Right? I mean, it looks like what you got in your basement with your kids' Legos, I'm sure. Or another guy, another person built this. Now, you, I don't know if you can see the detail on this. There are like a thousand working LED lights on this. Those are individual people inside of a stadium built to look like the all-tech stadium, soccer stadium in England. One, one of the guys built this, the next one. Uh, that's the Lego. 114 feet tall. For comparison, that is St. Stephen's Basilica beside it. Now let me ask you a quick question. What's the difference between those structures and the ones that I build in my basement? Those are good, right? That's a... Can I tell you the real difference? The person creating them, right? I've sat down before and tried to create something. I came up with a, um, a very even um, block tower about this tall. It was really awesome, right? This was Duplo blocks too, the big ones, all right? It's my expertise. The person doing the creation determines how significant the creation is, Correct? A master woodworker is going to do something completely different and better than me if I'm given a block of wood. At our, uh, Madison Creek has an art night um, every year, and one of the things that they do is they they give you just a lump of clay, and you make pottery out of it, then they fire it for you, or you take it home and, and fire it yourself. And it's just crazy what some of those people are able to do with a block of clay. Right? Now, some people make bowls. They're fine. And then you see some people that are making artwork sculptures out of it. And the difference is the one who is creating. Look at what it says in this passage. Who did the forming? The Lord God formed. That's what it says in Genesis chapter 2. By the way, this is a point. We'll get to that that. That Genesis 1 in just a second. This is the point in the narrative when the description of what God does to create changes. In Genesis 1, how does he create? What does it say he does? He spoke. God spoke and it came into being. In fact, look at this. He talks about how he made the two great lights. Do you know what the two great lights are? Well, let's see. God made the two great lights. The greater light to rule over the day. What do we call that? Sun. That thing that's been hiding for the last three weeks. That's what we call it. The sun, right? And the lesser light to rule over the night. What's the lesser light to rule over the night? 
moon, right? So he made the sun and the moon. And it just says he, he kind of spoke and they came to existence. And I love this part of Genesis. I love this. Because we will sit and we will marvel at them. We have people that use telescopes to try to find them. We have spent billions and trillions of dollars as a nation to get a better view of them. And it throws in the stars like it's just an afterthought. God spoke and the sun came to be. God spoke and the moon came to be. Oh yeah, and he also did the stars. And the whole first chapter of Genesis, this is the way it describes what he does. He spoke and he divided the waters. He spoke and light came out. And then you get to Genesis chapter 2 and it says, The Lord God forms. It's an intentional change to show that when he gets to humanity, when he gets to the creation process of us as human beings, it is the focal point of all creation. It's not the stars. It's not all that stuff and the galaxy that blows us away. It's not the creation of things like the Grand Canyon and the ocean that we all adore, that we marvel at. The thing that God focuses attention on, the thing that God zeroes in and forms in the midst of all of that are You and me, humanity. And somebody say, well, wait a minute, Pastor. If you read further in chapter 2, it says he also formed the animals after man. That's true. But that's why we go back to the rest of that verse in chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God. The creator, Lord God, formed the man out of the dust from the ground. And then this is unique to us. He breathed the breath of life into his nostrils and the man became a living being. He breathed the breath into his nostrils and the man became a living being. In this moment in creation, God gets literally, he shows the picture almost like of a potter. And that's another description that's used about how he forms our lives. But he gets at the potter and he gets it all together and he forms it up and he gets it all exactly like he wants it. And then he breathes life into us. When we go to Brazil every year, one of the things that every team that has been a part of the Brazil mission that I've been a part of for almost, well, over 20 years, almost 22 years now. Every team that has gone, I've done this, I've participated in this, several of the people in this church have participated in this. One of the things that we do every year is this drama called the Redeemer. And it's a wordless drama. Some of you have been around and have seen us perform it. It's been so long since we performed it, many of you have never seen it. But the point of it is to show creation through the fall of sin, all the way to Christ's death for us, through the fact that you can be restored. It is the gospel presentation in about a seven or eight minute wordless drama. And one of the things that I loved about that, when I was younger, when I first started going to Brazil, I played the role of the creator, of God in the drama. And I remember this. And I remember even thinking about this. I was a seminary student. I was a guy that had, you know, was working on advanced degrees. And I remember how it impacted me that one of the things that happens at the beginning of that drama is that we quickly, as the drama begins, make the sun and the earth and the moon. And all that. I mean, you kind of form it and you throw it out there and you get that. And you just throw stars. I mean, it's literally, that's the action. You just throw stars. And then the music slows. And there's somebody behind me. And the music slows because it shows God taking his time at the next part, which is forming man. 
And I remember you go and you kind of touch and you touch an arm and the arm starts working and you get that going and it's functioning. You do the leg and the leg is kicking. And then when all of that is done, when you've got everything kind of functioning, the eyes are still closed. The person that you're creating, the drama there, the eyes are still closed. And God steps back and looks at him. And then he steps in, looks directly into his face and blows. And immediately the guy's eyes open. And he comes alive. And I loved the visual image of the personal nature of God creating humanity. Because it means that humanity is significant. Genesis chapter 2 tells us that the Lord God formed us, created us, made us, crafted us. And then he breathed into us. And if that wasn't enough to declare that we as human beings are special when it comes to the creation, we go back to chapter 1, to chapter 1, verse 26. This is what it says. Then God said, let us, we'll talk about it in a minute, make man in our image according to our likeness. They, men, will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. Let us make man in our image. Now there is a lot to unpack here. We don't have time to unpack everything here today because there are places to go and people to see and all of that. But I want you to understand there, there, there is a lot of theological meat in this passage. One of the things we see from the very beginning is that when God created man, apparently it was a divine event in the councils of a triune, of a trinitarian, of a three-person-in-one God. Nowhere else in creation do we see this sort of council, this sort of discussion happening within the Godhead about what is happening here And it tells us right here that we are created in the image of God. Now, scholars and theologians call that the imagio Dei, which just means the image of God. So what does that mean? Well, it means a lot of stuff. One thing it means is that we are not God. We're not created as God. We are created in the image of God. By the way, there's a distinction between us and Jesus on that front. When it talks about human, it always talks about created in the image of God. When it talks about Jesus, it says he is the image of the invisible God. So we're not God, but we're also not angels and we're not animals. We are some form of creation that has the likeness of God within us. And there is humility that comes with that. There is dignity that comes with that. And there is responsibility that comes with that. First of all, we see humility in the claim that we are an image bearer of God. It means that we are not the center of our own universe. We are not the master of our own faith. We are not the determiner of right and wrong. We are not the end all, be all. We are not all that. We are lower than God. We are not God. But it also reminds us that being human means that there is dignity in being human. And whatever else way it means, it means that we are like God in some way. It hits that twice, two different words. We are in the image of created in the image of God, and we're created in their likeness. 
It means that we are more than the sum of our parts. We are not just a collection of atoms. We're not merely a highly evolved mammal. That we are made in the image of God. And listen to what Psalm chapter 8. You don't have to turn there, but write it down. Out there by by Genesis 1.26 in your Bibles, write Psalm 8. Because listen to what he says. I love this. This is about creation of God and human dignity that comes in creation. Psalm 8 says, Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name through all the earth. Maybe you sang that as a, as a growing up or how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have covered the heavens with your majesty. From the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have established a stronghold on account of your adversaries in order to silence the enemy and the avenger. When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you set in place. He says, when I look at your creation, it is magnificent. He says, you have created such a magnificent thing that it stuns and silences your enemies. Verse 4 says this, chapter 8, though. What is a human being that you even remember him? A son of man that you look after him. And then it says in verse 5, listen to this. You made him, humanity, little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all the sheep and oxen, as well the animals, the birds of the sky, the fish of the sea, the paths through the currents of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. When God created us in His image, He gave us dignity. He crowned us with glory. Whatever else it means to have the dignity of God, the image of God in us, it means that there is something intrinsically, something inside of us that makes us different than the rest of creation. There are some things that we can see. That we have the ability to reason, the ability to think, the ability to create, the ability to love, the ability to mourn. That we have those deeper, that I think, therefore I am. We understand that there is something in the midst of it that gives us our dignity. And the third thing, not only humility and dignity, the third thing that comes along with being created in the image of God is that it gives us responsibility. This is what I found interesting. I don't think this will be on the screen. But in chapter 1, verse 26... It says, let us make man, it's in verse 26, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. Then verse 27, it's not on there, and 28, gives us that reminder. He created us in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created the male and female. And then verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, every creature that crawls on the earth. He says, because you are my image bearers, you have a responsibility to the world. We were created not only in the image of God, but to image God to the world, to reflect God to the world, to mirror God to the world, to everyone and everything around us. We are His Image bearers. And he tells us specifically here what that means. It means that we to care for creation. We're to care for the creatures. We are to fill the earth with his glory. And that's why when you look at the scripture and why the foundational basis for what we're going to talk about over the next three more weeks is this. 
one of the biggest tests of how we are doing as image bearers of God is how we treat every other image bearer of God. One of the biggest tests of how we're doing in our responsibility to bear the image, to be the mirror, to be the reflection of God in the communities that we live is how we treat every other image bearer of God. Because the reality is that if you are made in the image of God and you have dignity because of that, then every single person that has ever lived, that is living, and that will live is created in the image of God and they have dignity that is worthy of us respecting it. That would have been a better place for a bigger amen. I appreciate the two or three of you that did it. And how we treat other image bearers describes how we're doing as God's representatives. That's why as a church, and that's why as Christians, we must care about some issues that are not easy issues in our world to always care about. That's why we care about the sanctity of life from womb to tomb. That a child in the womb is made in the image of God. It deserves us to fight for and protect that child. That a father or a mother or a friend or a neighbor or an acquaintance or a stranger who is at the end of their lives is a human being created in the image of God. And we are required to show them respect in the way that their life ends as well. That's why issues like racial reconciliation should be at the heart of who we are as believers. Because every person created on this earth, no matter where they come from, no matter what their skin color is, no matter what their ethnicity or their nationality is, no matter who they are, every person created on this earth is created in the image of God. And they deserve us to treat them with dignity. That's why justice reform ought to be part of our desire as Christians, to make sure we get that stuff right. Because people that either commit crimes or people that are falsely accused are people created in the image of God and have the dignity of God within them, and we ought to treat them with the dignity of God as it is in their lives. That's why poverty ought to be something that as Christians we care about. Because people that are trapped in the cycles of poverty that prevent them from living a life that is full and good are people created in the image of God who have the dignity that is associated with that as a part of their lives and we need to treat them as such. That's why medical help to people that are in need of medical help should be an issue that we as Christians care about because we those are people that are sick, that are failing, that are ill, that are created in the image of God and they have the dignity that comes with that in their lives. And we ought to treat them as such. And that's why we ought to be skeptical and care about issues that are coming down the that soon of stuff that you may not even heard about before that are going to try to take humans to the next level of evolution. Implants and things that are going to go into us and people putting things in our brains and how we do it. And I'm not saying how we react to that, but we better care about what makes us human, what makes us different, and then what makes things machine. 
Now, let me just tell you, some of you, when I start saying those issues, you immediately start saying, what side of the fence is he on? Is he a donkey or an elephant? And you start interpreting, there's someone, you're like, amen, amen, that's a, that's my, I'm riding that elephant on that one. Go for that. Some of you are like, ooh, he got, he got a donkey issue in there. I'm glad for that. These aren't elephant or donkey issues. They're Christian beliefs about the dignity of humanity. And let's just be honest with it. The church would take care of what the church ought to take care of it. We wouldn't have to depend upon donkeys and elephants to do it. I'm not talking about political issues here. I'm talking about biblical humanity. And how we treat one another and how specifically, and we're going to talk about this extensively next week, so I know that's exciting for some of you. Some of you are going to make sure you got, uh, you're going to get the flu next week, all right? We're going to talk about people we don't want to be our neighbors are our neighbors. And the biggest test, one of, if not the biggest test, of how we are doing as being the image bearers of God is how we treat every other image bearer of God. More specifically, how do you treat your neighbors? People in your sphere of influence, your friends, your church, your co-workers, your classmates, the people that actually live in your neighborhood, the people you disagree with, the people you disagree with a lot, the people you really a lot disagree with, the people you grew up and were told weren't as good as you, the people that you look at and whether you intend to or not, part of your upbringing or part of your sin nature, you immediately look down upon them. How do you treat your neighbors? Now, can we admit something real quickly? Okay, we're in church. Is it okay to admit some things in church? This ain't easy. This isn't easy stuff we're talking about. And you know why it's not easy? It's because Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are beautiful descriptions of the creation of God. And in Genesis 3, it goes off the rails. And here's the reality. That image of God that was placed in humanity in Genesis 1, that, that, that forming and breathing the life into, something happened in Genesis 3 that has damaged that. Now, it didn't destroy it. It's not gone, but it is marred, it is scarred, it is stained, it is broken. Because what we have come to understand, or what we need to come to understand, is what dehumanizes us is not... What the world tells us dehumanizes us. What dehumanizes us is when we choose to walk away from God's plan for our life and sin mars the image of God in our lives. And so the reason it's hard is because the people that we're looking at are sinful people. Our neighbors are full of sin. Thank you for not wholeheartedly amen in that. But it's true. And here's the equally staggering reality so are we but it's not hopeless when everything was passed down when the sentences were given god spoke of the one that would come to bring back the kingdom and the dignity that comes with being an image bearer of god and so as a church we have two realities that must come forward We are to go into the world 
preaching the good news that people can be saved, that the kingdom is here and the kingdom is coming. And we are to illuminate by our actions and specifically the way we treat other people that the kingdom is real. We are part of a rescue story for our neighbors. The question is, how will we treat the image bearers of God? Let's pray together.